following program is produced by the Align in the Sound team. If you like what you hear, please stick around at the end of the show. To find out more, contact us and contribute towards a positive future. G'day. You're listening to Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM. You're listening to Behind the Lines. You're listening to Xena. You're listening to Scotty. And we are joined today by David Rovix who is an American independent singer-songwriter, author, activist, anarchist and anti-capitalist broadcaster, historian and producer. His music covers many subjects, radical history and many, many other social justice and environmental issues. David has been an outspoken critic of both the Republican and the Democratic parties and is currently leading the Portland rent strike. Today, he'll be filling us in on what's been happening across the big pond from a first-hand perspective talking about what it takes to bring about much-needed change. Uh, The phone did go in and out during this interview, (laughs) so bear with us as that happens. And we began by asking David, what is so important about knowing your history? In order to understand the world around you, I think if you don't have the dimension of time in there, along with other uh, ways of understanding your surroundings, then you're really uh, getting a very limited uh, perspective and history is what you need in order to get that that other dimension of, uh, of of looking at the world around you and understanding how it got to be that way. And I don't think there's any way to move forward in terms of uh, any kind of conscious movement <laughs> forward without understanding where we came from. Mm-hmm. And why is that? Basically, if we don't uh, if we don't know what happened before, then we're just kind of bumbling around in the dark, and and uh, not exactly. It's not inevitable that we're going to make the same mistakes. We, we won't necessarily repeat the same same things because the same things aren't going to happen. The same circumstances necessarily aren't going to be there. But basically, we're we're very liable to make the same sorts of errors, and certainly as uh, like as social movements or as you know the general sort of populations that are often being kept in line by uh, powerful elites in many different countries in the world are just much more easy to manipulate if they don't understand uh, how the manipulation has worked in the past. Mm. Because the elites doing the manipulation, they often, I think, have a good playbook that that goes back many generations in terms of (laughs) understanding what it is they're trying to accomplish and how they're going. You know, they have a long-term perspective oftentimes that that a lot of people lack in order to understand the world around you i think if you don't have the dimension of time in there uh, along with other uh ways of understanding your surroundings then you're really uh getting a very limited uh perspective and history is what you need in order to get that that other dimension of uh of, of looking at the world around you and understanding how it got to be that way and I don't think there's any way to move forward in terms of uh, any kind of conscious movement (laughs) forward without understanding where we came from. Following on from that, the history that we do get is through the mainstream media, really. And and what sort of history does that strike you as? I mean, it's just... um, it's so dangerous, the history we get from the mainstream media, which is like really um, a big part of my attraction to uh, understanding what really happened and talking about it and, and providing what, you know, you might call an alternative narrative, you know, 
and and telling the kinds of stories that they're not telling us. Uh, but it's really insidious. It's it's not simple. It's not a simple picture in terms of what we're told and what we're not told by the mainstream media. And I, I think the sooner we understand how complex the actual reality is, the better. Because like like things like what's been going on here in the United States, especially in the past year, the mainstream media is more and more... Um, able or ready to start to start talking about uh, some horrible history that they long ignored, such as the uh, pogrom in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921 that killed hundreds of people and completely destroyed a huge uh, black neighborhood. You know, the, the, this kind of history was long just not talked about, and now uh, it's being talked about, uh, and, and that's good. But uh, there's so much other history, such as the history of people who, the, the, the explicitly anti-racist organizations that opposed those kinds of uh, mobs uh, that have been written out that are still not talked about. We can't talk about it. It's not allowed. You know, labor history, radical labor history is still totally hidden history. So when you have a situation where you're allowed to talk about the racist pogroms, but you're not allowed to talk about the anti-racist uh, labor unions, uh, that fought the Klan in the streets of cities across this country at the same time. That's very dangerous, and that's our situation here now. Mm. I guess that's interesting. I mean, you've, you've mentioned Tulsa, Oklahoma there, and, and I guess if people had known about that a lot more broadly, then nobody really would have been surprised at what happened in New Orleans. Was there any parallels there? Yeah. I mean... Well, it's very, it's actually very interesting in terms of New Orleans because, uh, it, because there was, uh, there was a flood in 1927, uh, the, the, very similar to Hurricane Katrina in 2005, there was a flood in New Orleans that, uh, really, um, created thousands and thousands of re- refugees. And, uh, actually the federal response, although it was a, uh, although they were, um, they were, although they kept white and black refugees from New Orleans in separate camps, and there was a lot of institutional racist uh, practices still, of course, going on at the time, as one would have expected in the Jim Crow South of the period. The federal government response, aside from that, was so much more effective than the response in 2005. There was so many more uh, federal uh, people on the ground responding and creating, uh, you know, refugee tent cities and stuff like that for people who had been uh, flooded out of their homes back in the 1920s. Way, way better response than in 2005. But uh, the the pogrom that I'm talking about in Oklahoma in 1921 was, uh, was, uh, this was a mob, uh, a a white racist uh, mob attack on a black uh, urban neighborhood in uh, Oklahoma, uh, in a prosperous black neighborhood uh, called Greenwood. And uh, in the end, um, uh, uh, I think all or almost all the victims were black and something like 40 square blocks of Tulsa was were destroyed. Uh, there were thousands of people homeless. Uh, it was a really uh, extreme, uh, horrible, horrible situation that was then uh, made worse by the government response afterwards, which was to not do anything to help the community that had just been completely destroyed. 
So yeah, and that's that's one of uh, there's other other similar stories in in this in the history of this country. You know, yeah, but that's one. That's yeah. probably the worst. Yeah, totally. In terms of like a pogrom, you know. So that's interesting. The other thing that you brought up was um, the many different sides to every story. Um, you were talking about the, uh, the the racism and then the opposition to the racism, and, and one of those is just getting blocked out. So you're not even getting a black and white yeah. polarised view. You're just getting one view <laughs> and none of the nuance and none of the yeah. context. Yeah. So I mean, there's it's we're t- basically the the different views that we're told. I mean, by the mainstream media, it's like you got the conservatives, uh, you got the conservative side of the equation that's like downplaying the uh, the, the history of institutional racism, downplaying the current re- reality of institutional racism, uh, and 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 basically not talking about these kinds of pogroms and this sort of thing. That's that's their orientation, but basically, and then you got the liberal media which is which is to which and their position is yes let's talk about this horrible history of institutional racism and let's talk about institutional racism today but they both agree that we're not going to talk about the class war we're not going to talk about anti-racist organizations that we organize the entire working class against capitalists that were using uh, racism as a tool to divide the working class you know, and we're not going to talk about that because the people, because the very corporations that we're talking about historically, that we're talking about organizing against, that we're talking about who are who we're dividing people using racist tactics, these are the same corporations that own much of the media today. So it's like, you know, of course we're not going to talk about that stuff. But the, but the picture that we're left with is that uh, you generally have a white population that's always been, you know, either either disinterested in in the problems of of racism affect and how it affected people of color or they're actively involved with it and the history of white people and others who actively opposed uh racism especially white people who opposed it is just written out and and it's like and it's and it's and it's not like I'm trying to you know toot the horn of, of white anti-racists and say, you know, white anti-racists have done such amazing things that we've eliminated racism in the country, which has obviously not happened. But that's not happened because we've been up so violently opposed by this government and by entities like the FBI, you know, and lynched and, and have had union halls burned and had the American Legion massacring, you know, workers and you know, hanging hanging union organizers under bridges, and you know this is why uh, racism continues today. It's not just because of uh, white privilege or white disinterest in in doing anything about it. It's also because people, in, white and other people opposing racism, have been violently repressed by the state. You know? yeah, yeah, so yeah. that's another part. They're, they don't want to talk about that. You're, you're not going to hear about that on the liberal media or the conservative media. Yeah, that's right. And Carl Polanyi talks about the double movement, um, which is sort of, he, I think he begins about the Industrial Revolution, and he's, he's talking about how there, there is the, the lords and the kings and the corporations come out of that, and that's one sort of stream of society, which is the, the ruling elite sort of stream and, and mindset. But there's also, ever since the beginning, there's been a pushback from the other side, and it, it's, been, it's been jockeying back and forth. And this double movement Absolutely. is what you're talking about, isn't it? 
Absolutely. I mean, history really can be, as a friend of mine used to say, who was taught history in high school for decades, history can be summed up as a conflict between the haves and the have-nots. And, and that is basically, you know, that, that's what sums up most of the real movement in, in the history of human civilization is some aspect of that conflict uh, between, you know, some aspects of those with power and those without it, you know, and uh, that's absolutely the case. And where for all the history of the powerful and the wealthy making all these uh, uh, big uh, having all these all this supposed impact on the world. Uh, there's a hidden history of uh, what was really going on uh, that that actually created all these different events, which which oftentimes had to do with the, that conflict, not uh, with uh, what we're told in the history books uh, generally. Mm. So, um, David, I was listening to one of your um, Sunday sessions yesterday, and you brought up some really interesting. Uh, very current, relevant issues that are going on. When we're talking about, you know, the media not giving a fair coverage, and sometimes that's not just the media's um, intention. It's that you've got active um, organisation against the media being able to get information out. Like you mentioned in your session that um, the three cities with the the highest rates of um, police brutality and violence towards. Uh, the black community and towards anybody who's doing anything against mm. what the gender is, is um, you've got Seattle, uh, you've got Portland, your city, and New York City. Um, and <laughs> one of the things... Yeah, exactly. And one of the things you had mentioned was that you had you know, attended quite a few protests and you had witnessed the police actively targeting the media. And we're not just talking independent media, you know, freelance media. We're talking mainstream media. So that all media, people with great big badges on that say press and very, you know, like professional modern cameras that obviously part of a, um, a, a big media station were getting targeted equally so that they're trying to report yeah. on what's happening and hopefully reporting fairly accurately with a balanced view. But the police are coming in actively and eliminating that opportunity for the media to broadcast what's happening in, and then they can fiddle with the narrative afterwards of course when you can you know report something non it's not live anymore you're reporting it after it happened like we saw of 9 11 you know, the narrative kept changing and changing as we went along mm-hmm. yeah it is it, i mean i the fact that the most violent police have been the, and the most police brutality have been in the three cities that the Trump administration declared to be anarchist jurisdictions is so classic. And it's almost like, were, did, did, were they really paying attention when they declared that these three cities were anarchist jurisdictions? Because, I mean, you can see that. You know, or, or unless unless they're trying to say that the amount of police brutality was basically because of uh, you know left wing or or you know Black Lives Matter or Antifa type of mm-hmm. activity, um, I guess that's that would be their argument. But I think um, a, a very uh, sensible argument to make is is just the opposite that that actually uh, so much of the police brutality was uh, was what kept a lot of the. Uh, uh, sort of less desirable aspects of, of the protests from the perspective of the authorities uh, going on. Because, I mean, if anybody's ever been uh, to a protest, I mean, first of all, 
you know, putting it into just reality context here, you're talking about when you're talking about Antifa or you're talking about like uh, Black Lives Matter f- folks who are in some neighborhoods in, in Portland uh, on a typical day. I mean, the, you know, there will be bigger protests that involve that broader community organizations that have lots of people from, you know, cross sections of society. But in terms of the typical daily protests that were going on for so long, it was overwhelmingly young people overwhelmingly people that were uh, many, many teenagers, uh, many people uh, living out of their cars, uh, housing insecure. I mean, you're talking about a, a complex situation where, so we're, you're talking about a bunch of bunch of young folks, and then they're getting attacked by the police. And then, you know, when people are getting attacked by the police and they run away, and they're being attacked by the police because they're going to be attacking, destroying property, you know, supposedly, <laughs> then, of course, what you do is you destroy property. I mean, that's the natural reaction for a lot of teenagers when being attacked by the police for destroying property is destroy more property. You know, so this whole, the whole idea that the violence is the solution, you know, and then more cracking down and more prison and this kind of, you know, more federal troops. I mean, the most violent that Portland ever got was when the federal troops you know that that's what fomented uh, so much more violence uh, than than it, than before or since um, they were deployed in large numbers. You know, they 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 didn't uh, do anything to prevent the violence. But I mean, in terms of media coverage, I mean, I guess when the when the protests were big, I mean, certainly the media continued. Media, all kinds of media, continued to cover uh, what was going on. It's just that they can, uh, journalists just continued to get injured. I mean, you know, protesters also, of course, continued to get injured and kept on showing up. You know, Twitter is full of accounts of injuries of both protesters and journalists, you know. I, I think, um, you know, if you're, if you're a journalist who's like wearing a bright red or bright pink outfit and lots of makeup and a big camera and a big furry microphone and, you know, like really obviously looking like a mainstream journalist, uh, you're, you're less likely to get attacked by the police. I don't think that the police are necessarily targeting the most mainstream looking journalists, but, you know, the fact is, of course, that uh, they're, 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 they're basically indiscriminately targeting anybody. And so Anyone that looks like media, right? Yeah. Basically, I mean, anybody that looks like, yeah, anybody that looks like they might remotely be a protester. And, you know, I, I, well, the, you know, most of the people with cameras are, are dressed entirely in black. And I'm, I'm not saying that they necessarily look like protesters or that the police aren't targeting them. But, you know, I think um, it, the police are just being indiscriminate. I, I don't know necessarily that they're. Well, they are sometimes actually specifically targeting journalists, but oh, generally, as a general rule, I think they're basically just being indiscriminate. Mm. So one of the things that we had quoted to us um, during some of the Black Lives Matter protests in Australia was that, you know, a couple of our politicians tried to shame the protesters for being responsible for potentially creating um, the spread of COVID because there you are mingling in crowds and you're out there doing things and you're not staying at home and being obedient. And one of the protesters quoted said, you know, we're actually more afraid of unchecked police brutality than we are of the virus. And that's why we're out here doing oh, this. Yeah. You know, like, if, if that's the fear, if the virus is the only incentive for us to not have our voices heard, that's not enough of an incentive because, you know, we're dying from worse things right now. 
Um, so that was, you know, it was really yeah. interesting to hear that perspective. And I know that there's been a lot of attempts at hijacking of the Buck Live Matters by various groups. And, you know, there's so many different sides to what's presented. But um, essentially what you're doing is you've got a group of people who've had enough and they've had enough for centuries, literally. And they're saying, OK, we've, we've got to take action to make change. And then you've got a situation very conveniently. There's a situation with the pandemic, which is preventing people from gathering in public and voicing their opinion. And no matter what side you yeah, sit on regarding convenient. regarding the pandemic, you've still got a very, very, what I call a very convenient virus at this particular time. Yeah. Yeah. Although I'd say in terms of the protests that have been going on, uh, I mean, mask wearing is universal. And, mm-hmm. um, and according to studies that I've heard about, which I, I guess have been pretty extensive, uh, there's been no viral outbreaks linked to uh, protests, uh, although there have been viral outbreaks linked to other mass outdoor uh, gatherings, such as the uh, motorcycle gathering in South Dakota last summer, but that was uh, no almost nobody was wearing masks at that, and um, yeah, so that the mask. I mean, it seems to be a, a pretty good uh, argument in favor of mask wearing. And from what I could tell, like most of the protesters were very actively encouraging. Um, you know, correct practice around social gatherings outdoors. So that, you know, there was very, definitely, very yeah, very key, clearly, yeah. clear intention to do the best they could in that situation. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Mm. And, yeah, I mean, to the point where when I was singing at protests, I was bringing my own microphone, um, you know, and, and apologizing profusely for not wearing a mask while, while singing, you know, but I, I think I was, you know, I mean, I, and I'm sure I probably offended some people, but I, I figured people could stay clear of me, you know, enough, you know, that I'm outdoors singing and, and maybe I could do it without a mask on. But I, I was I, certainly, I, I, I knew I, of course, had to bring my own microphone uh, mm-hmm. under those circumstances. Mm-hmm. But it's, uh, it's uh, you know, that's it's the only live gig I've done uh, since I cut my Australia tour short, short last March actually singing at a couple of protests. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. We're going to uh, have a listen to another song now from David. Um, so this is moving sort of from the US to international, and um, there's a guy called Paul Wolfowitz who also moved from the US to international. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, the Paul Wolfowitz song? <laughs> Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, this is uh, going back to 2005, and uh, before that, I mean, basically, Paul Wolfowitz, uh, uh, I guess he's still alive. I don't know what he's doing these days, but he uh, was a prominent neocon in the Bush, uh, George W. Bush administration, and he he very politically went from being the president of the World Bank to being uh, in charge of the privatization of the Iraqi economy under the, you know, got under the auspices of the U.S. occupation of the country. Uh, and, and that just, I thought, at the time that I wrote the song, when he got the job working for the World Bank, uh, working for the uh, Iraqi, uh, well, for the U.S. occupation and privatizing the Iraqi economy, I thought this is just... This is just too poetic because this is exactly what those of us in the global justice movement had been saying uh, forever, uh, that uh, that there is a link between U.S. imperialism and U.S. capitalism. And if Paul Wolfowitz's uh, job uh, rotating rotations don't make that very clear, then I don't know what does. All right. Here's Paul Wolfowitz.
done giving orders to generals. He's moved to another sphere. He's through with ordering the tanks to kill. He's gonna do something different this year. He's moving from Virginia to Washington with a neoconstant bank. He's through with the war department. Now he's gonna run the world bank. He said he'd be true to the mission. That hunger and want should end. And as all Afghans know, he's a man of his word on that we can't depend. So be prepared for prosperity. It's coming to your door. Cause there will be no poverty once we kill off all the poor. Last week he was bombing cities, now he's a financier. Pay your debts or say goodbye, all the witnesses here. He'll bring the world things it needs, such as nuclear power, giant dams and hamburgers. No doubt he's a man of the hour. He's proven it over and over with finesse and aplomb. And for those who disagree, well, then he's got the bomb. Last week he was bombing cities, now he's a financier. Pay your debts or say goodbye, all of the witnesses here. He's a real American, so he must know best. He'll lead us to glory on this many contests. He'll lead us to freedom, and we will be so glad. Just like those choppers in that market in downtown Baghdad. Last week he was bombing cities, now he's a financier. Pay your debts or say goodbye, all the witnesses here. And... David Rovics with yeah. Paul Wolfowitz. What a classic. What a classic. You should have seen our thigh slapping going on in the studio. Oh, we're doing square dancing. <laughs> That's a good thigh slapping song. Yeah, bit of square dancing, bit of, bit of boot scooting going on there. Definitely. And I wanted to say to you, David, that um, we actually have some regular uh, Behind the Lines listeners who are in Portland. So they were very excited to oh, know great. that you were going to be on today. So, yeah. See, so we've got quite a, you know, quite a broad listening audience internationally, uh, which surprises us sometimes that they've found our little show. So uh, that's why we <laughs> try and... thing about the internet. It is. Yeah. And this is how shows tell you how important independent media is. You know, you can get perspectives from yeah. people on the ground from all different parts of the world and, you know, they'll get the real story. That's it. That's Definitely. it. Now, I guess we we're talking about this double movement and and the the thing that the the I guess the rich side of, of the equation is trying to do is to to gather the wealth of everything else and just hoard it essentially. Um, it's, it seems that way, and it's hard to say like what the game plan here is because like it all. It always reminds me of a certain Star Trek episode where, where they, uh, they, they're they flying along and they come to some planet and the, and uh, Commander Data is doing an analysis of, of the civilization that they're looking at down on the planet. And, and he says, extreme wealth inequality, and it looks like probably everything will collapse sometime in the next 250 years. Or he has some kind of like grand assessment, but it's just, it just seems so obvious that, yeah, eventually... When inequality gets greater and greater, eventually everything is going to just go, you know, collapse. How, how long can it sustain, any society sustain, uh, you know, at what point do things just snap? I mean, I don't think anybody has a clear answer to that question, but it doesn't mm. seem like, uh, I mean, in 2020, I think what we have seen, 
the rich are actually concerned about that prospect because they have been doing things uh, to try to shore up the situation and prevent uh, starvation, you know, in, in <laughs> you know, in the United States, you know, uh, which to, to, to a degree that's actually been a bit surprising to me, you know, that they actually are shelling out this much money for unemployment and that sort of thing. Uh, you know, they, they clearly are worried about the, you know, the prospects of maintaining domestic tranquility with this level. Ooh. I mean, it looks like we lost David. That'll, be, that'll be the end of David for a bit. So we're going to play another David Rovick song. Uh, we're going to play St. Patrick's, Patrick's Battalion. This is from his viral solidarity concert. True story. My name is John Riley. I'll have your ear only a while. I left my dear home in Ireland. It was death, starvation, or exile. When I got to America, it was my duty to go. Enter the army and slog across Texas to join in the war against Mexico. And it was there in the pueblos and hillsides that I saw the mistake I had made. Part of a conquering army with the morals of a bayonet blade. So in the midst of these poor dying Catholics, screaming children, the burning stench of it all, myself and 200 Irishmen decided to rise to the call. From Dublin City to San Diego, we witnessed freedom denied. So we formed the St. Patrick Battalion, and we fought on the Mexican side. We formed the St. Patrick Battalion, and we fought on the Mexican side. We marched neath the green flag of St. Patrick, emblazoned with Erin Golbra. Right with the harp and the shamrock, and the libertad para la república. Just 50 years after Wolftone, 5,000 miles away, the Yanks called us the Legion of Strangers, and they can talk as they may. But from Dublin City to San Diego, we witnessed freedom denied, so we formed the St. Battalion, and we fought on the Mexican side. We formed the St. Patrick Battalion, and we fought on the Mexican side. was the last overwhelmed by the cannons from Boston we fell after each mortar blast most of us died on that hillside in the service of the Mexican state so far from our occupied homeland we were heroes and victims of fate from Dublin City to San Diego we 
me with this freedom denied. So we formed the St. Patrick Battalion, and we fought on the Mexican side. From Dublin City to San Diego, we witnessed freedom denied. So we formed the St. Patrick Battalion, and we fought on the Mexican side. We formed the St. Patrick Battalion, and we fought on the Mexican side. And you're with Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM. You're listening to Behind the Lines. You're with Scotty, you're with Gina, and you're also with David Rovix, the singer, the USA-based but world-roving radical historian, singer, songwriter sort of bloke. And you're back now. So, David, I just noticed that um, the nice... Um, connection between your surname and that you have been a roving troubadour in your life. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. It was like the best, uh, the best insult that other kids could come up with to, uh, went to, to that related to my last name was to call me Roving Rovix, and it just didn't ever sound so bad. You know? No, it's, it'd probably be a great album title too. I think. <laughs> it came true. Right. <laughs> Um, you know, with, in relation to your surname, we'll, we'll jump back into what we're talking about before in a minute. But I just love um, one of the songs you did, which was about your great grandparents, and you talked mm. about them being refugees because you know we're talking about this perception of what refugees are. And in the song, there was a lovely bit of history about you know your great grandparents coming here, and I believe your great grandfather didn't actually make it because the the journey was. Um, just so difficult that there was, uh, you know, you lost your great grandfather, and then your grandfather didn't have a dad. Young. So my grandfather, um, yeah, he did. He basically grew up without a father, you know, which is very common, really. But uh, I mean, it really the most of the population of of uh, yeah, no, most of the population of well, so much of the world are, are, is made up of refugees. Australia and the United States are mm. certainly. You know, it's are really, if you look at it, are you know, very, very largely populated by. Oh. All right, we're having a bit of fun with this phone line, so let's have a bit more music from David Rovix. <laughs> okay, we're going to listen to "After We Torture Our Prisoners." We'll get rid of the dictator, rebuild your country, make sure all your kids go to school. We'll clean up the cities, get the sewage plants running, institute parliamentary rule. We'll bring you autonomy, senators and judges, and a shiny new blue banner. We'll bring you pride and prosperity, food in your bellies, and every home a phone, fax, and scanner. After we torture our prisoners We'll bring you decades of peace Spiritual release Free religious expression You can say what you want In the papers you run We'll never force a confession After we torture our prisoners The oil will flow just where it should go Across the desert and into the sea You'll thank your God and the CIA That finally you are free After we torture our prisoners You'll all be safe with us to protect you And keep you out of harm's way You'll thank creation and your liberation from the dark into a new day After we torture our prisoners 
You can all jump for joy, each girl and boy, and look boldly into the distance. You'll be so happy for all that we've done for such invaluable assistance. After we torture our prisoners, you won't have to worry about tyrants and bullies now that you have sovereignty. You can hold your head high, kiss Saddam goodbye, say hello to democracy. After we torture our prisoners, after we torture our prisoners. And that was David Rovick Swift, After We Torture Our Prisoners. Now we're getting a good lot of uh, good lot of David Rovick's songs in today, so due to our bodgy phone line, but I guess and somebody it, doesn't want us talking. <laughs> yeah, we were just joking about that. Maybe it's not actually a joke. Who knows? Who, Who knows? knows? Yeah. I've been hearing all kinds of weird clicks on my phone lately, so maybe they're paying attention again. I mean, yeah. It's so strange. So, sorry, you were talking... Yeah, go on, David. Yeah, the, oh, about refugees? And talking about your own family, you know, your, your own family were refugees. And I think it was um, in the song and you were describing also before the song that the, the typical refugee, like a lot of the prejudice against refugees has been manufactured because of a perception. But the typical refugee, as you said, was just fleeing an, uh, an unlivable situation, usually a war or something or extreme famine or something that meant you just couldn't continue to live in that area. Absolutely. And, and then when you look at the, the narrative that we've all gotten living in places like uh, the U.S. and Australia, uh, that we, we all are fed different narratives about who these people are that settled these countries. And uh, it, it, it's, a lot, it's, it's a complex uh, picture, but, um, but they don't tend to like to paint the picture as these are countries full of refugees. Yeah, and you know, but that, that's essentially what I mean. What the what we are is, I mean, you look at you know, look at the people who were sent to Australia from Ireland, or yeah, the people yeah. that emigrated yeah, during yeah. the famine here. Yeah. Yeah. All, they're all refugees, you yeah. know. And it, it's uh, but we call them immigrants. So, you know, yeah. we, we call we call our ancestors immigrants. They, mm-hmm. We say they immigrated for usually uh, to find a better world or or mm-hmm. some. Re- they, we, we don't want to say that they were refugees. It's yeah. somehow not. You know, it's not okay to be descended from refugees. It's, mm. it's unfashionable, you know, somehow. Mm. But that's what, it, that's what we are. Went to school with a, um, a lady... A- post-secondary school with a lady who was uh, a refugee who'd come across on a boat in a very, very traumatic situation. And um, she had lost her daughter because her daughter was crying when the people were trying to find out if they were a refugee boat. And the other refugee said, if you don't silence your daughter, we'll kill her. And that's unfortunately what happened. And, you know, that's the type of situation. Nobody puts their child on a boat willingly unless what they're leaving is worse than what's potentially ahead. And I think that's what we yeah. need to remember is that, you know, you're fleeing something that is unlivable if the chances of you dying are pretty high if you stay there. So, you know, that, that Absolutely. whole... Yeah. Go ahead, But David. I think we also need to understand in terms of history, we need to understand that just because a country is populated uh, by, say, mostly uh, people of European descent, like the United States or Canada or Australia, uh, doesn't mean that it's not mostly populated by people who are descended from refugees, because all three countries are. And um, the fact that all three countries, along with New Zealand and many other countries, are white majority countries is because of racist immigration policies that all of these countries have had. 
but uh, these, but 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 I think what we need to understand about our societies, uh, which they don't want us to know, they being you know some members of the elite who like to create narratives that are very inaccurate about reality and history for their own benefit. What what we need to understand is that these societies full of these European descended majority societies are full of refugees of people who are and not that they were necessarily in a situation where they were not necessarily going to die if they stayed at home but they had the opportunity to immigrate from a very bad situation to a situation that they hoped might be somewhat better you know which which is and that's being a refugee you know it's you know they were they were able to be refugees, you know. So because you had these rights only immigration policies in Australia and the United States, so you know that people from Europe could be refugees, uh, and other people from other societies didn't even have the opportunity to be refugees, you know. Mm. But that doesn't mean the Europeans were not refugees; they were also refugees, yeah, you know. Just, aside from the rich, yeah, you know. convenient labeling of different groups to give people different ideas. You know, you've yeah. got the word immigrant. Like we're better than you. Yes, the word immigrant. Yeah seems to hold some sort of respect and where the word refugee depending on you know your viewpoint can be a positive yep. thing or a negative thing yeah mm. so. and somehow in in the, in the racist uh, context like the racist world view somehow white people can't be refugees you know so uh, you know and 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 anyway we're we we're white so we're better than those other people and so you know that's the you know so so it's important i think for us to conceptualize ourselves as descended from more respectable people. Mm. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm just guessing at the whole idea yeah. of what they're trying to do here. You know, I'm not an expert on this stuff. But, well, you know, you see these a lot. I know the reality, reality is not what they're talking no. about. But, you know, the, the wool they're trying to pull over our eyes, it has nothing to do with reality. Yeah, and this is where we encourage people to listen to shows like this and independent media to try and get a broader perspective, a more balanced perspective. And uh, I think there's been a lot of Hollywood movies that have made that joke where you've got, uh, you know, people from the u.s crossing into mexico as refugees when there's a climate crisis you know there's this classic example of people crossing the river there into mexico to escape some terrible climate crisis so um you know that that was a great what was that movie there was i I was wishing they oh world war z right i think i was wishing they would expand on that whole theme you know it was just mentioned at one point you know i wanted to see more of the american refugees in mexico yes and now we have climate refugees so that climate refugees are coming from everywhere right we've got climate refugees in here from the bushfires we've got climate refugees all over the world not necessarily just in third world nations. Oh, absolutely, and and of course uh, with these fires, and we're having these kinds of uh, these kinds of fires that you've been having in Australia. We've been having them in uh, the United States as well. Mm-hmm. You know, in the West, and these unbelievable, massive conflagrations. You know, and uh, I mean, it's just uh, really uh, uh, such a turning point for so many people. I mean, you know, you can't. It's hard to imagine that people talk about the real estate market. In, in somewhere like New South Wales or California. I mean, who would possibly be crazy enough to buy a house in a place like that? I mean, it just seems nuts, you know? It just, like, the idea that a house could be worth X amount of money in a place that's about to burn down any any month. Or potentially and, sea levels and, rising. You know, Your beachfront property is no longer worth $5 million because it's underwater. <laughs> right. All of a sudden. Yeah. <laughs> so, Scotty's got some good, good points he wants to interject here, I think. Well, yeah, I was thinking we'd try and and turn the conversation away from the the problems because we can go forever on the problems um, and, and have a look about 
what we might be able to do about it because I know that you're you're quite involved with that as well and you've been uh, travelling the world talking to all sorts of radicals all around the place. Um, what, are, what are some of the really cool things and projects that you've seen going on that, that can get to the roots of this problem? Because I know there's we've certainly seen a common thread through all of our shows over the past 15 or 16 years. And have you seen a common thread, I guess, to, to lead off with? Have you seen a common thread running through many of the protests and, and movements that you've been through and talked with? I mean, definitely what we need is um, community and, and, you know, popular control over our lives and over the basic things, uh, basic things that impact our life, like uh, the cost of living, the cost of rent, uh, the cost of uh, the... the uh, the, the way that this way the economic system is structured, uh, taxation, uh, whether we have uh, who who controls uh, what happens to the forests, uh, whether they're cut down or preserved, and if they're preserved or cut down, in what ways this is done. I mean, the, when if we're leaving it up to capitalists and, and massive corporations to decide any of these things, then it's not going to tend to be decided in the interest of the population or of the planet. And so, you know, we need more democracy, more local control. And and that's, I mean, that's the basic, uh, you know, sort of tenor of the conflict and has been for a very long time. Uh, but, uh, I mean, it, it this can... It can take so many different forms, uh, losses and victories, and it can be partial in so many different forms. I mean, but, um, you know, certainly I think that the model of, in terms of one of the many crises that we're facing here is in, in the U.S. is, is a crisis of, of a continuing crisis of the, whole, the housing crisis and homelessness and evictions, and I think well, we can respond to that uh, by actually in the street unevicting people, you know, uh, by having a direct action that will ultimately cause laws to change, and I think that'll cause the laws to change a lot faster than, uh, you know, writing letters <laughs> to your legislature. Signing petitions and things like that. So yeah. You're involved with the Portland rent strike. Could you tell us a little bit about that, like artists for rent control? Because, you know, the demographic of Portland, there's a large component of Portland that is artists and creatives and, you know, people who generally have unstable incomes and have been deeply impacted by, of course, the art sector being hit so heavily with COVID, you know, shutting them down. And they've probably been the first casualties of not being able to pay their rent. Yeah. And I mean, I, first of all, I mean, sadly, I have to uh, say to anybody who hasn't been to Portland in the past 10 years that it's, it's you know, it's nothing like what you heard about before, like uh, in Portlandia or 10 or 15, 20 years ago, what Portland was like, a thriving, uh, inexpensive uh, city full of artists and all sorts of folks like that. It did used to be like that when I, when I first moved here and, and when I would visit on many, many occasions before I first moved here in 2007, it was like that. Uh, but uh, it has since uh, become uh, much, much more expensive. And uh, like, but I mean, just like a lot of the statistics, I think they don't necessarily keep track of uh, exactly. And, and, and there's a lot of lag time in terms of how, when we know things like, so I don't know wh how we would know necessarily how many artists we've lost in Portland, but I know that between 2000 and 2010, Portland lost 50% of its black population. 
So, uh, you know, you can just that, you know, the average artist is making about as much as the average black family. And, you know, so, yeah, this, this city has been completely transformed. It's not only been ethnically cleansed by capitalism, but it has certainly lost most of its artists in the past 20 years. So, uh, but those of us who are left, uh, you know, the, the, the artist for rent control is, is just a, an initiative of mine and a, and a few other folks. And what we're just mainly trying to do is form a uh, squad that can respond to evictions when it comes to the point, well, when on those occasions when people actually want uh, that kind of response. So what really honestly it's been is, so far is building a network uh, which I think at some point in the next year is going to be very active. Um, but so far, uh, the kind of um, mass wave of evictions that many of us have been expecting is not hitting yet. But there's more evictions than 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 that. Certainly, far more than there should be during an eviction yeah. moratorium, which is what. Yeah, but so you still have an eviction moratorium, so that's just people, in spite of that, still turfing out their tenants. Well, we, yeah, we have an eviction moratorium, but it's cut so many loopholes. So there's thousands of evictions happening all over the you know in cities across the country. I mean, I think Augusta, Georgia, has had just by itself about 2,000 evictions just in the past few months. I mean, there is so many evictions going on, uh, even despite the moratorium. There's all kinds of loopholes. Yeah. So, so what what is the the resisting evictions, yeah. and what's its sort of uh, what's its track record in history of, of being effective? The great, uh, the great track record uh, in, in terms of, like, um, in the United States was really the ban on evictions that uh, happened in Chicago in the 1930s as a result of the anti-eviction movement uh, basically overwhelming the authorities to the point where they just stopped carrying out evictions and then ultimately just uh, made uh, carrying out evictions illegal uh, for the duration of the Depression. Uh, so that, but that was a response to the movement. Oh, did we lose David again? Maybe. I haven't got the beep beeps yet. No sound here. Uh, uh, I think we may have may have lost David you again. You know, and we're just going to try and give David a ring on another line here. Yeah, so if you right. bear with us for a minute, why don't we listen to a David Ravik song? Uh, wouldn't that be uh, unusual? Yeah, which one? Uh, which one have you got there oh, for we're us, Scotty? Hear make the planet Earth great again. That's a good one. Okay. We can tackle the economy first. Get rid of all the billionaires. Set the system up so that instead of hoarding, people share. Make housing, food, and health care. Basic human rights around the world for everyone is how we set our sights if we could get to that point i could say that then we could make the planet earth great again with human rights around the world there'd be no refugees no safeguarding your homeland from terrorists overseas no need for a border wall no jobs to protect with a global basic income it's simple and direct free trade fair trade same damn thing we get to that point then we make the planet earth great again <laughs> <laughs> 
like the survival of our race. By which I mean the bipeds on this floating rock in space. The most invasive species anywhere around. The one that keeps on burning everything that can be found. The one that will get it together in the nick of time and then make the planet Earth great again. We can stop spending money on antiquated technology such as tanks and missiles and most other things military. We can use those vast resources to make us all safe and sound. Windmills in the air, coal and oil in the ground. We can be the envy of the rest of the galaxy when we make the planet Earth great again. We make the planet Earth great again. We make the planet Earth great again. So, we're trying a different method of getting through to David. David, can you hear us? Okay, I've got David coming through now on my okay, headset. Yep, good. Yep. Okay, yep. So, this is a community radio special here. We're going to get this done no matter what. Let's try this. Okay, David, are you there? Yeah. Good, good. Yeah, usually on BBC when people are disconnected by five times in an hour, it's usually like they're in a war zone or something, yeah. but here we are in Portland, you know, yeah. I don't know. Ah, it's sort of similar to a war zone. I'm fairly close to the centre of town, too. It's yeah. not like I'm in the outskirts of the city either, you know. No, well, it's good to have you back, and uh, hopefully if this, this should work without any issues, but um, we'll cross our fingers and... Um, jump back into the, the, yeah. the story of the rent strike. And I think Scotty was asking what it looks like to resist the eviction. Like what actually does that involve and, and how does it work? Yeah. Yeah, so what happened uh, recently, um, and, 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 I'm, I'm, and this was just uh, an effort that I had very little involvement in any kind of direct way, but um, I was trying to get people out to it and, and, uh, and activating the network that I've been uh, working on here with the Portland emergency eviction response but basically um uh, recently there was a very good little um victory that i think points the way to uh, possible uh, future campaigns when a family was facing eviction and um well they were uh, basically the police came uh at, at like five in the morning and uh kicked out the people who were in the house uh, and this was and there was already a campaign uh, going on uh, to try to prevent their eviction but uh, uh, police came and uh, kicked them out and then basically within a couple a few hours there was uh, a couple hundred uh, people uh, around the house uh, and uh, who blockaded the neighborhood uh, and uh, prevented uh, and, and open the house back up uh, to people to move back in and, and basically shut down uh, several intersections in the neighborhood until the police, uh, the, the mayor uh, decided to uh, uh, pursue other options <laughs> other than evicting folks. And, uh, you know, the, the guy who, who had bought the property uh, basically agreed to sell it. And so uh, there was, um, and there was, you know, so there's, it was a bit of a complicated uh, picture with with uh, not not a really straightforward like 
solution type of situation, but but definitely one where direct action played a big role and a uh, very important role in um, things uh, in, in, in the end uh, working out for the mm-hmm. family and, and that that was able to stay in their home. Yeah, and I'm guessing so it was. A, so, sorry, go ahead, David. Mm-hmm. Go ahead there. I did cut you I off there. I mean, I hope it'll be, uh, it'll be sort of a possible blueprint for, for future uh, actions if uh, they're going to try that again. Mm. And I have actually seen video footage of that taking place in the UK during the 2008 economic crash. There was um, also um, in some of the smaller rural villages, uh, there was some really good support um, against families being evicted. So um, it sounds like it's, you know, very grassroots um, community concept but now with a little bit more organization perhaps it can you know create the change that we were talking about where it actually becomes illegal to um remove people from their shelter Hmm. yeah i think i think that's the thing you know if with enough uh enough support uh enough sustained support and enough um militant tactics and, and blocking streets and you know really uh stop business as usual uh, and then I think it, it is entirely possible that we could uh, abolish evictions as a practice uh, although it would be it, it'll be a big struggle because of course uh, uh, it'll affect the profit motives of the landlords in a big way if, if they're not able to uh, physically evict people well this is where we start getting back to you know we've got to restructure the entire system we're just talking about band-aiding bits here and there that you know of showing up as major problems in different times of crime crisis but you know really it's it's a whole system overhaul you know the system itself isn't designed to work for the majority of the people the 99% aren't favored by by the system that's currently in place yeah uh, or at least um at least the bottom 80% anyway yeah. <laughs> for sure i mean yeah so i think i mean it really is yeah, we were, we were going to talk about something a bit earlier. I think Scotty was going to touch on about the the rise of psychopathy and um, how that impacts things. Oh, you mentioned you, yeah, yeah. I, I guess, or did you want to bypass that one and go to something else? Well, I guess I'll just set it in a bit of context. Mm-hmm. I mean, what we're both doing with this radio show and with your whole your whole career of singing and storytelling mm-hmm. is trying to get new ideas mm-hmm. essentially out to people in, in a in a way that. Um, mm-hmm isn't done in, in a lot of places and this is just one of those things that I came across while I was doing my um, doing my research for something or other but it's it's the PCLR or the psychopathology checklist by a fellow called Robert Hare and this is uh, it's not part of the DSM the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Health Problems or anything but it, it's a parallel thing to that sort of I think it's sociopathy is, is the equivalent in the DSM. But this is a, a whole set of diagnostic things that's accepted by courtrooms across the globe as in sentencing and that sort of thing, particularly in the US. But um, sometimes I just like to run through the, the, the criteria here and you have to score very highly on each of these to actually get into the, the psychopath uh, thing. But it's a hilarious... It's, it's quite funny to do this because... It just describes a lot of people. And corporations. <laughs> yes. So the first yeah. one is glib. It's a very good, to put it in a psychological context like that, I think it sheds a lot of light on the um, how crazy uh, the capitalist system is uh, that we are told that we that things will work better when we when we compete with each other and we are greedy and, and we look out for number one and you know none of that is true actually societies fall apart when people behave that way 
you know, no society functions like that. And, uh, and, and, and capitalism doesn't, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a lie. You know, we, 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 we can do, we can accomplish much greater things when we actually work together yeah. and, and use resources sensibly. And when the government is involved with, uh, with regulation and, you know, and all this nonsense about the free market and competition, it's just a bunch of lies. Yeah. It is, it is, and this is where all the stories are coming from that we hear every day about ourselves and about society. But just have a listen to this. This is, this is classic. So the first one is glibness in communication, which is convincing, fluent, but very insincere speaking or writing. Then there's pathological lying. There's an inflated sense of their own importance, like being ordained by God and that sort of thing. There's manipulation for personal gain. There's a lack of remorse or guilt. There's a, a lack of emotions when an emotional reaction is appropriate. Lacking in empathy, I don't feel your pain. Failure to accept, accept responsibility. No realistic long-term goals, preferring crazy screams over life or career goals. Irresponsibility, not very big on doing the right thing. There's a parasitic lifestyle, extracting the wealth earned by others' hard work is just fine. Always seeking stimulation, so thrill seekers, getting in the limelight a lot, you know. And criminal versatility, they don't care which rules they break, you know, immorality. And there are a couple more, but they're for people who are psychopaths who were unsuccessful and wound up in prison. Um, so the people we're talking about are successful psychopaths who haven't yet wound up in prison. They've wound up in the uh, in the power structure Politics. instead. That's right, yeah. I mean, there's yeah, a, you're describing the, the ruling class. Really. Yes. I mean, yeah. everything, yeah. It's uncanny, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a there's a yeah, saying that yeah, goes really with is. it. Um, what is it? If you're born a psychopath poor, you go to prison. If you're born a psychopath rich, you go to business school. <laughs> I think that was a wasn't it That's a Bob right. Dylan thing? If you steal a little, they throw you in jail. If they steal a lot, they make you a king. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. But yeah, so so you are in with stories and and, and doing the art of storytelling. And and what are what are some of the tips for people who are also out there uh, telling stories and trying to change the world through this, the 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 storytelling that they're doing? Uh, what, what sort of things could you help them out with that they may or may not be be doing? I think I would say that. Um uh, the best way to tell a story is, is just to tell one story and don't try to tell two and certainly don't try to tell three but just tell, usually best to just, just tell one story at a time and just tell the story and don't tell people what you think or what you feel about the story just tell the story and if you do it well then um, it will lead your audience to the same sorts of intellectual and emotional conclusions that you probably uh, reached before you wrote or the song or the story that you're telling. But uh, you know, maybe not. Maybe they'll reach other conclusions. But don't tell them what to think or what to feel, uh, just uh, or what you think or feel. But just tell them, tell the story, and also uh, tell the story well. I mean, if you're writing a song, every line, every rhyme has to be perfect, and you can't have too many, you know syllables in a line and you know and, and the music has to be uh fresh and not sound like something else that you just heard yesterday and, you know there's there's a lot of tricks to making it work and you're casting a spell and and the spell has to work and the elements there's many elements to casting the spell and making the spell work um but and there's uh, various ways to make break the spell and one of those ways is like a bad rhyme or uh, music that's really derivative or you know any number of other things but if you 
tell a story well and, and the rhymes are good and, and you don't tell people what to think, then uh, it'll probably it, it'll probably have a good impact. Well, when I was listening to some of your music, David, as part of my research, I actually, I think I probably got a lot more from your lyrics than I did from sort of reading Wikipedia <laughs> about your work and what you do. And I think there's this profound connection and communication in your lyrics. You know, they're very succinct and you don't need a lot of words to get a very powerful point across. Yeah, that's the that's the thing about um, the the form of, of songs is that you're, you're dealing with a very uh, strict form, very little uh, maneuver room. You know, you have a few minutes to, to say something, and uh, so you, you you learn to be very uh, you know economical with uh, words, which is a, a very powerful thing uh, to say. Uh, something with fewer words and uh, is it, a it's a it's a powerful thing and, and then when you're it, when it rhymes and when there's a, a, some kind of an anic- a, a story that you're telling in that uh, form then that uh, you know it's like oftentimes just enough detail all the just all the detail you really need and no more is often uh, the best way to go when when telling a story in a song I find. And, you know, the songs that capture our imaginations, the ones that just, you know, sort of stay with us almost in perpetuity over generations, sometimes it's just one line or, 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 you know, a couple of lines from the song and that's what carries us through. And I was just thinking of a sort of a more modern song that um, I can't remember all the lyrics, but I can remember the key one, which was Waving Flag. And you might remember that song when it became popular. Uh, and then immediately you connect yeah. to the visual of that and all of the people the connecting in solidarity, you know, around the waving flag. So, you know, there was that whole um, piece of the storyteller capturing the imagination. As you said, you don't tell people what to think. You allow their imagination to take them on that journey through the words, the lyrics, the, the, the rhythm of the song that you're, that you're creating for them. Yeah, and, and sometimes it is... Um really uh, hard to know what's going to stick uh, and sometimes it can be uh, a little line like that that uh, I mean so often I find the most effective uh, refrain is often a really simple line it's uh, often decept- deceptively simple you think it's going to be too simple to really work uh, and then it's just right you know mm. and if you try to get more complicated with it then then you don't it then doesn't work you know so it can be something as simple as something like waving flag exactly mm. Mm. so uh, movements, the really successful movements throughout the uh, throughout the ages, really have had a, a repertoire of song which sort of, I guess, expresses their their values and and their their principles. Um, can you like what about uh, someone like the Wobblies? I mean, you were talking before about how violent the the union movement was repressed in the U.S. I think it was the most violent, certainly in the uh, in the Western world. Um, yeah, can you talk a bit about their song tradition and and any others that really inspire you? Yeah, I mean that is really quite something when you look at like uh, pretty much I guess every social movement that I've ever heard of. If you look at the movement, you'll find that if it was a really vibrant social movement, that there was a lot of art and music spontaneously. Uh, involved with the movement, and in some cases, like in the case of the IWW and Wobblies, the Industrial Workers of the World, and, and in other cases, like uh, 
many other cases, like the civil rights movement uh, in, the, in the 60s and many other movements, they very consciously used music and cultural communication forms as a uh, tool for organizing and morale building and um, and and music and other uh, forms of uh, like skits and plays and uh, comics and uh, all, you know poetry, uh, many other forms of, of cultural forms of expression like that played a really, really important role in, in lots of different social movements. And um, in the case of the IWW, uh, there was the particular element of the movement in the United States, and I think really in other, you know, well, actually in Canada and, and Australia at the same time, uh, the IWW uh, was um, a, a, a movement largely of immigrants. Uh, and... Um, so the uh, mostly people who are speaking English as a second language, uh, or in, and, and often not speaking it very well, and and so um, while English was the dominant language for the IWW, they organized lots of different languages and published uh, newspapers in lots of different languages, but but simple English was the dominant uh, thing, and and doing and, and simple English put in the form of songs and comics was the uh, main form of popular education that the union really engaged in. And uh, I mean, when you got a union card with the IWW, it came with a songbook. I mean, that doesn't really, I mean, it's hard to, hard to overstate, you know, just how much music meant to this union. And I guess that was... The union still exists, and I I shouldn't talk about it in the past tense, but today it has thousands of members, whereas, you know, a hundred years ago it had millions. Yeah, that's right. And I guess this was in the time before TV, wasn't it, where singing was a cultural activity that people did every day, just in their own houses. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and that was uh, one of those things was like, um, one of those things that just happened was also like in, say, urban neighborhoods across the United States, which was where the IWW was doing a lot of their organizing, wherever there was a skid row where people were living uh, in, in, you know, in poverty, uh, there was uh, Christian uh, groups trying to save their souls and feed them at the same time, right? Groups like the Salvation Army, which these days is more into feeding people and clothing them, but back then they were actually very evangelical as well as into feeding and clothing people. And so they would have... Um, uh, bands uh, outside playing, uh, you know, Christian, uh, you know, gospel music, basically, outside of the soup kitchens. And uh, so the IWW, uh, that's what basically informed the union in terms of deciding what songs they were going to write lyrics to. Uh, it was basically whatever the Salvation Army was was already playing with that brass band. You know, just uh, changed the lyrics uh, to something uh, more useful and sensible and, and that people would like, you know, about union organizing instead of about uh, Jesus. And uh, that's, that's, that's where they got the material, basically. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty, pretty cheeky, isn't it? It's very funny. Uh, and if anyone wants to look up yeah. that musical tradition, you can look up uh, Utah Phillips. And you'll find a, a wealth of good stuff. He's one of the one of the classic balladeers from the, the album. Oh. Utah Phillips tells the Utah Phillips sings the songs and tells the stories of the industrial workers of the world. A classic album. Yep. Yeah, right. I haven't got that one. I'll have to look it up. Is that the one where Bums on Rods comes from? Bum on the Rods. Bum no, on that's the, rods the ones which were uh, 
uh, collective work with uh, Annie, Annie DeFranco. Right. Yeah. yeah, they're they're very good too. Also great stuff. Yep. yep. Also wonderful stuff. Yeah. Now the the st- the, the environment movement has recently realised, in to to some extent, that statistics and and facts can't really do the job of, of swaying someone, of, of bringing someone around to something. It's it sort of bounces off the human heart, I guess. Um, whereas songs and, and stories can can hit us in the emotions. What do you reckon the uh, the importance of that might be? I think it really would be also impossible to overstate the importance of what you just said, at least in, you know, from the perspective of people doing this kind of thing, like uh, communicating in, in these particular kinds of forms, like through songs. I mean, there were scientists actually who studied uh, this stuff some years ago, and, and uh, I don't remember where are the details of the study, but basically what they found was that when you, when you play, when you, when you sing, words when sung go to different parts of the brain than words when spoken. So music communicates in, in a different way. It reaches people in, in an emotional way more easily than just words do when, when they're spoken. And so the songs have the capacity, like uh, movies or like actually traveling and going places, uh, they have the capacity to transport you to a place, to a different emotional place, and allow you to at least understand something in an introductory way on an emotional level, which is, I think, the first step uh, to, to really uh, more deeply understanding anything in any way, emotionally or intellectually or any other way. I mean, you need to have some kind of a visceral identification with uh, something. Otherwise, you're much less likely to really look into it. So, like, when you hear something about, you know, an errant bomb uh, in, uh, you know, hitting uh, the wrong target in Afghanistan, you know, if, you're, if it's just a headline, you know, that's one thing. But if you hear a song about some of the people who died that day, then uh, it's, uh, you know, then it becomes much more real and uh, in a way that statistics, like you say, just can't communicate. Mm. Although, of course, it helps, like, other things are very effective, too. I mean, when you see video of the fires, you know, then that's much more effective than just hearing, you know, there's a big fire, you know, (laughs) a headline or something. I mean, you know, but, but, so, I mean, I think oftentimes when you're talking about, uh, especially when you're talking about history, I mean, nobody can go there. You know, you can't, um, you can't take a trip to another period of time the way you can take a trip to another geographical location. And also, even though you can travel geographically, you're very unlikely to go, uh, you know, to most places in the world, uh, you know, in your life. So the closest you're going to get to uh, historical periods or, you know, most geographical areas in the world is going to be through, you know, music or songs or movies. And, uh, and songs, you know, they're, they're a powerful way to transport people to places and times, for sure. Mm. And you can also bring people together with, with stories and songs. I mean, I recall a uh, one of your This Week with David Rovick's uh, episodes where you were talking about a, an encounter you had with a bunch of Irish kids in a in a posh school, I think it was. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, music can bring people together and that's a really important function of it uh, in social movements and, and uh, you know, it, I mean, it's, it plays the role of 
education and of cheerleading, of, of you know, really fostering a sense of community, and, and it's, it's a very important thing for for a community. But uh, I think the, I think that I'm trying to remember what the, uh, uh, which um, story you're talking about there. Uh, oh, so, yeah. I mean, there's there's so many cases where music brings people together in ways that um, very few other types of events or situations would do that. I mean, I've been told at many concerts that this is the most number of different left-wing groups represented in one room that they've seen in a long time, you know? I mean, I think that's, it's not just that for me, it's about the effect of, of, of music. It has a, a sort of a, a bit more of a bringing people together kind of uh, impact, especially if you're writing songs about politics and history, but you're not, uh, but you're avoiding a lot of the catchwords, and, and it's not really clear, like, exactly where you fall ideologically, you know, you're just telling a story, you know, that can, that can appeal to, you know, people who like Trotsky or Stalin or Lenin or Bakunin or whatever, you know, they can all relate to a good story <laughs> about a struggle. Mm. Well, there's a song that um, is one of your newer ones that um, I believe is coming out of the same name. It's called Say Their Names, which is about the Black Lives Matter and all the lives that have been lost to police brutality. Um, and, you know, we hear these names in headlines spread out in different uh, media announcements, you know, for a moment captures our imagination. But you know, sometimes these things fade away. But you've you've managed to capture this really beautifully in in this song called "Say Their Names," and it um, it gives a short uh, story about with each person's name that you mention a short story about how they how they were murdered. Essentially, um, it's quite powerful. This piece. Um, it, would you like to tell us a little bit about that that song? Yeah, I mean, there have been I've been I've been right songs about people getting killed by police in racist acts of police brutality for a very long time now and um, it's just like of course there's so so many more uh, horrible acts of police racist killing in this country that than anyone could possibly write songs about or write anything about. I mean, it's a huge list of people. And, um, but, you know, when when things happen that, that uh, whether they're getting a lot of coverage in the news or not, it, it's uh, there's often something about uh, an event that, um, a particular killing that, that I find, uh, you know, something to write about. And I, but then, you know, so often I, I, I want to write about it, but I'm just like, what do I have? What can I say about this yeah. that's different from the last yeah. time? I mean, this is just uh, you know so repetitive. But then, um, after Jacob Blake was shot seven times in the back uh, by the police in Kenosha, Wisconsin, uh, last August, was it August? Yeah. Then I um, then that's when I thought of the, this uh, song uh, because mm-hmm. it just was like. Um, listing so, so many people starting with Jacob Blake uh, who had been shot by or in most cases killed by the police mm-hmm. and uh, just a few words putting into context what they were doing and I realized like when you're talking about the economy of words and the songwriting and how, how you have so little uh, to work with and how powerful it was to just put a little bit of context just a little bit of context into the situations where all these people were killed. Alright David we're going to have to wind up we're right out of time uh, what website can people look at to find your work? Oh, davidrovnix.com 
Oh, that's nice and short and to the point. And subscribe to your podcast this week, I believe. So you're on I got a podcast yeah, called this week. You can look for this week with David Rovix and yeah, I broadcast uh, live stream interviews that are on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, and then they go out as a podcast. So yeah, people go to davidrovix.com. Yep. They can read about, about all that stuff. And Great. I have to follow yeah. my podcast. And you can that. even subscribe to David Rovix's life. Thank you so much. All right. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you for talking to us today, David. Sorry about all the phone hiccups. That was David Rovix joining us from Portland, Oregon in the USA this morning. You have been listening to an episode of A Line in the Sound, the podcast made by Co-ops, Commons and Communities Canberra, Co-Canberra for short, the New Economy Network of Australia, or NINA, and Radio Behind the Lines from Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. Co-Canberra is working towards a cooperative Commonwealth. Our work builds strong communities, extensive commons and a network of climate cooperatives. The New Economy Network of Australia is a network of individuals and organisations working to transform Australia's economic system so that achieving ecological health and social justice are the foundational principles and the primary objectives of the economic system. Behind the Lines has been running for well over 30 years on Canberra's oldest community radio station, 2XX. We do extended interviews with anyone who's trying to make the world a better place. All three are volunteer-run, so if you like what you heard on this episode, join us and become the media. To join up with the New Economy Network of Australia, sign up at neweconomy.org.au. To help out with Behind the Lines, or to help our editing team finish off a mountain of good Australian New Economy info, which includes editing training, contact us at behindthelines98.3 at gmail.com and see 2XXFM.org.au where you can subscribe, donate and volunteer to Australia's only alternative voice, Community Radio. If you're not in Canberra, there's definitely one near you. To help out with CoCanberra, contact us at info at cocanberra.org.au That's C-O-C-A-N-B-E-R-R-A dot org dot A-U or come along to our monthly meetups, which we share with Nina Canberra Regional Hub, where we explore any and all aspects of the new economy. Find out what we're up to at cocanberra.org.au. And finally, if you want to help fund me, Scotty, to go full-time with this and lots of other related work, look up LiberaPay, L-I-B-E-R-A-P-A-Y, and search for Community Supported Scotty. From there, you can find out about all my other projects and donate to help create a new appropriate economy. Thanks.